Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to FBC. I'm so glad that you're a part of our uh, online worship service this morning. My name is Matt and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say welcome and I am glad you are here. Uh, Today we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of uh, 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 1, but before we get there, uh, we have an opportunity to do something together as a church Family, see for uh, last week and this week we're in this little like series within a series, looking at the the basics of the Christian faith, or what Paul in the text calls the good deposit. What are those those core uh, sets of beliefs and doctrines that Christians are to hold to and cling to and to teach and to continue to believe? Uh, one of the ways that the church throughout history has uh, kept to the basics and remembered what they believe is by reciting creeds. Creeds are a formulation of of doctrine and and beliefs that Christians hold to. And so churches throughout, again, uh, the centuries throughout history have recited creeds together. And so every uh, so often here at FBC, we also uh, want to recite the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the, the earliest formulations of the faith uh, that, that so many branches of the church throughout history have, have looked to the Apostles' Creed as this, uh, this sign of, of orthodox Christian teaching. And so uh, we now together, I want to invite you, wherever you are, uh, to recite the Apostles' Creed with me as an act of worship and as a way to, again, remind ourselves what we affirm and what we believe as Christians. So the words will be on the screen. Would you join me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hey, would you pray with me? Father, we uh, thank you for these truths that we have just recited, truths about who you are. And we remember this morning that you have uh, shown us who you are. You've made yourself known in the world. And so we uh, did not make this stuff up or simply uh, come up with these things uh, recently as our own good ideas. But no, this is uh, the faith that has been passed down through uh, generation after generation after generation of professing Christians who love you and know you. And so we just want to continue in that way, the way of Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would um, allow these truths to uh, 
be driven down into the depths of our hearts, that they would shape who we are, that we would continue to walk with you and love you more and more. And now, Lord, we give you this time as we turn to your word in just a moment. We pray that you would speak, that you would teach us, that you would uh, guide us in our time together. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, again, now we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're in this sermon series we've called Onward, which is just a walk through the book of 2 Timothy, this letter written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. And we've called it Onward because it's all about looking ahead. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are to look to the future to embrace and step into this next season of life and ministry and be prepared for what it holds. And so 2 Timothy is going to be our guide. Now, there are a a number of reasons that people don't read the Bible more often. I'm sure as you uh, look at your own life, you can think of a number of reasons that have impacted you. Uh, One reason that I hear quite often is that people don't read the Bible because it can be somewhat confusing or intimidating. Right? There's so much in this book. It's a big book and it was written uh, a long time ago and so maybe it's overwhelming uh, for you to approach it and try to interpret it or, or make sense of it. Uh, and that's, that's fair. That's a, an understandable concern, especially for us today. And that's why I think what we're doing here this morning and what we started last week is so important. Going back to the basics, right? Slowing down in the letter of 2 Timothy and taking a look at those core components of the Christian message. That way we can build a sort of a framework for how to view the world and how to understand what the Bible has to say. What's the big picture? What's the big story that God is telling? We can sort of have some shelves that we can then put things on as we read the rest of the Bible. And so whether uh, all this Jesus stuff is new to you and you're exploring it kind of for the first time, uh, or you've been in church for years and years, uh, either way, going back to the basics is always helpful. So I want you to take a look at our text for the morning. Uh, It's the same verses we looked at last week, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. It says this, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's remember again what we're looking at. This is a letter written in the first century from the Apostle Paul. He's in prison in Rome. He's awaiting his death. And here we have his words to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy serves as a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is trying to prepare Timothy for what's ahead. You know, we talked last week about how Paul in the text is referencing this core group of beliefs. Right? Verse 13, he talks about this pattern of sound teaching that he wants Timothy to hold to. Or in verse 14, he talks about this good deposit, something that was entrusted to Timothy. Now, uh, the word deposit there, as we talked about last week in verse uh, 14, was 
typically used to speak of money or finances, like something that was entrusted, given to someone to guard, money that was to be kept and held. But Paul's point is not that Timothy has been given money, but he's been given a message. See, Paul and the apostles knew, these early followers of Jesus knew that there were these core beliefs, these core teachings, components of a Christian worldview that had to be passed on to the next generation. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, it's your turn to carry that torch forward. Which again, we we mentioned last week, that's a little foreign to modern sensibilities. Uh, We today often want to maybe pick and choose what we believe or like reinvent Uh, ancient teachings or just update the teachings of the Bible to make them a little bit more uh, PC or a little bit more palatable to, you know, modern, enlightened, uh, sensible audiences. But uh, Paul says the opposite. Hey, don't reinvent the faith. Don't uh, update it. Don't make it evolve. No, don't, uh, the opposite. Don't waver on these core truths. Hold to these core truths teachings of the faith. Don't change the message. And so our approach here to understanding that message is is to look at the big story that the Bible is telling and see that it uh, contains four main chapters or movements. And those are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Again, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, these four movements help us understand the big picture story of the gospel. And so briefly last week, if you remember what we did, is we looked at those first two movements, okay, creation and fall. And we essentially were answering two main questions. Where did we come from and what has gone wrong? Okay, where did we come from and what has gone wrong? Wrong. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably want to know the answer to those questions, right? We all have to, whether you're a religious or a Christian or not, we all have to formulate some way of making sense of where, how did we all get here? Where did, where did we come from? What's this all about? And, and what's gone wrong, right? When we look at the world around us, something is not the way, or things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so what's the problem here? So for Christians, we said, hey, here are our answers to those questions. What the Bible teaches is one, creation, a good and powerful God created us. He made us and everything else, but he made human beings in his image to know God and love God. And he gave us the responsibility to steward the earth, uh, to, to rule with him over uh, the created world, to see all life and all living things flourish to the glory of God. So that's why we're here, to know God, to glorify God, and see his glory fill the earth. But the fall, we looked at the doctrine of the fall, uh, that things did not stay good because humans, the first humans, distrusted and disobeyed God, broke their relationship with him, they broke their relationship with one another and the world, and it left humanity alienated from God, deserving death, prone to sin and selfishness, doing harm to one another and to God's good world. And that is the human condition. So creation and fall. Now, we have to understand 
this doctrine of the fall and, and the problem that the Bible presents in order for us to understand the solution. Right? And so the Bible explains the, the results of the fall, the problem in a number of ways. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says that we uh, are dead in our sins and trespasses and we're deserving of wrath and the judgment of God. Romans 6 talks about how we're now enslaved to sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about how we need to be reconciled to God, meaning our, our relationship with God was broken because of sin and needed to be restored and, and fixed. Uh, Jesus uses the image of sick people who need a doctor. Jesus uses the image of, of lost sheep that need to be returned, of, of lost sons that need to come home. And so the natural question that follows is, is how is this massive problem going to be fixed? How is this massive problem going to be fixed? I think that most people still today would assume that, well, we need to fix it ourselves. We just need to clean ourselves up. We need to try harder. We need to do better. We need to read the right books. Work harder at religion or devotion or be more moral or selfless or whatever it might be. We need to somehow tip the cosmic scales in our favor by doing enough good so that it outweighs our bad and thus in the end be considered a mostly good person. And people will think, well, that's, that's kind of what church is about, right? You learn uh, the right things to do. It's about teaching you to be good and avoid the bad things so that you can get right with God. But the Bible's answer, the Bible's solution to the problem is completely different. It's completely different than what I just explained. It's not about you or I fixing things ourselves. Now here we arrive at chapter 3 in the story. Again, creation, fall, now redemption. Redemption. How are things going to be fixed? And the good news of the gospel, friends, is better than we can imagine. And so to un unpack this redemption piece, I want us to look at the words of Jesus, where he, in his own words, is going to explain uh, why he came and what he has done. Mark 10, verse 45 says this, Jesus speaking, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand what he was all about. He said, I didn't come to be pampered. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The term uh, ransom here, again, is actually a, a financial term. It was a price that was paid to set a prisoner free. It was uh, a price paid to buy back a life, to redeem someone out of slavery. And so Jesus is, in this statement, pointing us forward to his death. He's pointing us forward to the cross and saying, my uh, life and death is going to be the payment required to set you free. 
And so here we see this concept of substitution, right? Substitution. Jesus is going to give his life for us. He's going to die and pay our debt with his life so that we can be forgiven and go free. He, he bears our sin. He takes our place in death. He dies for us. I feel like one of the most helpful pictures of this in the Bible comes in, in Mark chapter 15 with the story of Barabbas. Uh, maybe you know it. Uh, as Jesus is, is going to the cross, there's this moment where we think maybe he's going to be set free and maybe Pilate and the other religious leaders are going to realize this man's done nothing wrong. What are we doing? Why in the world are we going to kill him? And there's this moment where, where Pilate has Jesus and realize, you know what, there's this custom of releasing a prisoner to the people at the time of Passover. And so he says, I'm going to let the crowd have an opportunity to have Jesus go free. So he says, hey, do you want Jesus to go free? Or he presents to the crowd this man named Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was a criminal. Barabbas was uh, rightfully imprisoned and going to his death. And the crowd, instead of having Jesus set free, they say, we want Barabbas. Let Barabbas go free. And we see in that moment this great substitution, this great exchange where Jesus, the innocent, Jesus, the righteous one, Jesus, the one who has done nothing wrong, who does not deserve death, goes to be beaten and flogged and crucified. While Barabbas, this criminal, this murderer, this man deserving of death gets to go free. And in that picture, we realize that you and I are Barabbas. We're all Barabbas on death row, deserving of judgment. And yet, Jesus takes our place and goes to his death so that we might go free. And the theme of substitution and sacrifice began uh, in the Old Testament where God showed his people the sacrificial system. Right? You can read in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system of the Jews. They had the system set up so that they could see that their sin, when they broke the law of God and disobeyed God and harmed one another, sin was offensive towards God and need to, needed to be atoned for. And so animal sacrifices were offered as, as a substitute for the sinner. The animal would bear uh, the guilt of the sinner or of the community. And this, this process, this practice pointed us forward to, to Jesus. And the authors of, of the New Testament looked back at the Old Testament and they realized that the death of Jesus was this fulfillment of the sacrificial system. That's what that was all about, helping us understand the, uh, the darkness and the weight of sin and awaiting this, this once-for-all sacrifice to end all sacrifices, which was uh, the death of Jesus. And so, I don't want us to lose sight of the heart of Jesus' mission, his sacrificial death for our sins. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, this, this sounds pretty uh, heavy. I mean, isn't Jesus like a great teacher? Shouldn't we focus on his, his ethics and the Sermon on the Mount and all these wonderful things he had to say? And surely, because he was an amazing teacher, gave us incredible wisdom and insight on how to live and how to love. So, so no question there. 
But maybe you're saying, well, wasn't he an amazing man of compassion? I mean, look at how he, he treated people, how he radically loved sinners, how he scandalized the, the church people. He scandalized the religious folks because he loved people so well. He extended grace to people. He welcomed people in, those that society looked down on, women or tax collectors, lepers or prostitutes. He invited them in. I mean, shouldn't we, we follow that example? Isn't that what Jesus was about? We would say, well, well, no question that is what Jesus was about. And we can and should uh, devote our lives to following the teachings of Jesus and following the examples of Jesus and living in the way of Jesus. He is our teacher. He is our example. But we needed more than an example to follow. We needed more than just a teacher. We needed a Savior. And so yes, Jesus is our teacher. Yes, Jesus is our example. But Jesus is our Savior. We needed someone to come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Romans 3 puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's chapter 2, the fall, right? And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we've sinned. We've fallen short. And how are we justified? How are we redeemed? How are we made right with God? Because it's not by our works. It's not that we cleaned our act up. We're justified, what does the text say? Freely by His grace. Meaning it's, it's a gift. By the grace of God, it's a gift given to us. Something that we, we didn't deserve, but God gave to us Anyways, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so this is the heart of the gospel message. Do you see how this completely transforms how we engage with God? Religion and following Jesus is not about exhausting yourself to try to measure up. It's not about pretending you don't have flaws. It's not about trying to earn God's love. God says, you already have my love. And I have done for you what you could not do for yourself. I have saved you. I've redeemed you. I've paid the price for your freedom. And so come and rest. Come home. Come to me. You belong here. And so to those who sin... To those who fail, uh, to all who are weary, behold Jesus, your Savior, one who loves you and has done everything required for your salvation if you would only believe and trust in Him. That's our part. Uh, this is to be received by faith. And so we, we take hold of what Jesus has done. We receive, we welcome what Jesus has done by, by trusting in him, by repenting, turning from our sins, and believing in the work of Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. Come and rest. Come and believe. 
Now, the good news of the gospel, uh, redemption, this third chapter in Jesus, is not just about his death, but it's also about his resurrection. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. No, he rose again. He conquered sin and death. This is what we celebrate at Easter, but more than just Easter, we celebrate this every week, that Jesus is alive. He didn't stay dead. And so there's then hope for us that just as Jesus was raised to new life, so we too can walk in newness of life. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 puts it this way, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So even when we were dead in our sins and deserving of judgment and separated from God, God, in his great mercy and his great love for us, he did what he made us alive. Romans 6 says, just as Jesus was raised to life, we too may walk in newness of life. And so redemption is in part about uh, the price being paid for our freedom. Our debt of sin is paid by Jesus. But now also we have this new life in Christ. We look forward and we have been changed and given life with God. Because we, friends, we want to be forgiven as we look back at our past, but we also want to be fixed. Don't we? We don't want just hey, a transaction where our debt is paid. We want that, but we also want to be transformed. We, we want to become new kinds of people. We want to become the kind of people who don't keep on doing those, those harmful, damaging things that we used to do. And so the hope of the gospel is that we are forgiven and fixed. There's a transaction, a payment for our sin, and we're transformed. God gives us new hearts. God gives us his spirit and empowers us to now live as he's called us to live. This doesn't mean that Christians are perfect, but it does mean we have new life and new power within us to live new lives. And this is big, friends. I I want us to see that it's not just like, hey, Jesus comes with his big, you know, sin payment credit card. He's like, let me get my credit card out. You guys are expensive, man. I'm going to swipe this credit card and uh, okay, payment is made for you. Now, okay, you can go free and, you know, I'm going to just step away and you have a good life and I'll, I'll see you later. That's, that's not the picture. No, we are, we're justified, we're forgiven, we're saved, we're made alive in Christ. Meaning salvation is not just some gift that like Jesus gives us apart from himself. Hey, I'll make the payment, go on your way. But no, in salvation, we are are connected to Jesus. Our life is somehow caught up with the life of Jesus. This is uh, what theologians call union with Christ. Through faith, we are, are bound and connected to Jesus. And so you see throughout the New Testament this language of being in Christ and Christ being in you. We're like a branch and connected to the vine, so that, that his life is now flowing through us. He now empowers us to live differently because he now lives in us. And so, friends, in this third movement, this chapter, redemption, yes, we have 
forgiveness, our debt is paid, and we have the hope of the resurrection, this, this new life and transformation now flowing through us because of Jesus. Now, here maybe some of us are tempted to say, hey, great story, let's stop it here. Right? This is where we end. Creation, fall, that was, that was heavy, and now redemption. Hallelujah, we're restored to relationship with God. That's a wrap. Here we go, let's close in prayer. But again, we talked about how there are four movements in this story. Right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Okay, so there's, there's more to the story. There's this fourth chapter that we have to, to look at together, which is restoration and really where we're headed. And if, if we miss this, if we miss this fourth chapter, then what we do is we make uh, Christianity just about me and Jesus. And it becomes this very uh, individualized way to think about salvation. Jesus loves me. Jesus saved me from my sin, and that's all there is to it. Now, again, it's true that Jesus loves you, and it's true that Jesus saved you. He saves us, individuals, from our sins. Yes, of course. But sometimes we just stop there, and so we say, hey, well, all you got to do is pray this message, or pray this prayer, uh, believe, and then go sit in church until you die. And it's like we, we talk about the king, and, and knowing the king, which is true, but then we don't talk about the kingdom. We don't talk about this uh, kingdom of God that's breaking into our world. And see, the, the good news of the gospel is even bigger. It's even better than we can imagine. It has more implications than uh, we think. And so the question is not just what is God doing with me, that's part of it, but also what is God doing in the world, right? We look around in our world and we see this need for restoration, this need for our world to be put right. We see poverty, we see injustice, we see racism, we see evil in the world, and maybe we're, we're more aware than this than ever in 2020. What a strange year it's been. This week we had an apocalyptic orange sky hovering over us. You can hardly breathe the air around us. There's social unrest in our country with fires and disease. Brokenness everywhere. And so we take a look around, right? And if we're honest, we just say, is this really how things are supposed to be? Hey, something is not quite fixed yet. I think people in the first century honestly took a look around and said similar things. That things are not right. We need things to be fixed, not, not just in here, but also out, out here in our, our world. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he actually announces the beginning or the inauguration, we'd say, of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one true king of the world, and in his kingdom, as he rules and reigns, things will be set right. And so Jesus did not come just to, to make our hearts right with God. He did that, yes, amen, hallelujah, but he also then shows us this new way to live, that our world might be restored. And friends, it's this conviction that has compelled Christians to action for, for centuries, 
As followers of Jesus, we are citizens of his kingdom, and so we will obey his rule and reign. We will do things his way. We will love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we will love our neighbors. This is why Christians are involved in social issues. This is why Christians care about orphans. This is why Christians care about immigrants. This is why Christians care about the unborn and the poor. This is why Christians have worked to abolish slavery. This is why Christians work to fight modern-day sex trafficking. Okay, we are not here just to proclaim a message about, about love and reconciliation with God. Yes, that is central. We also are called to demonstrate what it looks like to know God and to obey God and love Him and love our neighbors. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when we realize that Jesus is going to someday destroy hunger and disease and poverty and injustice and death itself, it makes Christianity what C.S. Lewis called a a fighting religion. When we are confronted with a city slum or a cancer ward, this full version of the gospel reminds us that God created both the material and the spiritual and is going to redeem both the material and the the spiritual. You see what he's saying? We don't just sit around and say, I got my ticket to heaven and everything else around me can just burn. Now, as Christians, we say the kingdom of God is breaking in. Jesus, the king, is on the throne. And so we are going to build hospitals. We are going to care for orphans. We are going to love those in poverty. We are going to see God's kingdom come. We are going to preach the gospel, yes, and then we are going to demonstrate the power of the gospel in how we love people. And so the question for us is, are we involved in the work of the kingdom? Are we involved in loving our neighbors, in working towards restoration in Jesus' name in the world? Now, this concept uh, often, again, concept of the kingdom, often resonates with younger people, uh, a younger generation right now who, who really cares about justice who cares about social issues and wants to do something about poverty and address all these issues in our world. And that, that can be a really good thing. And so some of us, again, we have the error of never getting to chapter 4 here and looking at the restoration and the kingdom work that God has for us to do. We just, we just stop with you know, me and Jesus. But, but the other error that we can fall into, which some of us are prone to today, is that, that we skip to chapter 4 too fast. And we leave out chapter 3 about redemption, about the work of Jesus. And so some people, we want the kingdom without the king. Let's try and fast forward to the kingdom without the king. We say, well, we'll just do the work of peace and justice and, and healing our world and so on, but, but we don't need Jesus. But that does not work. That, that can't work. Again, it doesn't work if we, if we think of, about sin exclusively in, in corporate terms, about greed or about racism or materialism or, or systemic issues. Those things are, are real. But if we just look at them and forget about our, our personal responsibility, our individual sin before God, then we'll miss the fact that sin is offensive to God and we need to be reconciled to him. And we, before we go out and try and fix the world, we need to make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord. We need repentance. We need the cross. We need uh, personal faith 
in Christ. And so, yes, it's good news that God is bringing his kingdom. God is restoring our world. God is bringing peace and justice in Jesus' name throughout the earth. But that's only good news if you are a part of that kingdom, right? If you've been reconciled to the king. And so we need chapter 3, redemption, to be saved by grace through faith. And then we need to go on and join God in his work in the world. Friends, we need both. And I will just say, just to clarify here, I don't want us to be naive and, and think that, hey, with restoration, we're just going to go out and fix the world on our own. You know, we're going to go make it happen and work for justice and, and work for peace and see God's kingdom grow. The reality is the work of God's kingdom coming on earth will, will ultimately only be realized fully when Jesus returns. We know we need Jesus to come back and set things right. So, so early Christians, if you look, they fix their hope, uh, not on their own power to fix things, but on, on a future return of Jesus. You know, like we're going to be about the king's work while we can, but we know we need Jesus, our king, to come back. And he will come again and once for all deal with evil and injustice in the world we look forward to that day where he'll return, he'll, he'll save, he'll judge, he'll do his work. And one of the many examples of this we see in Scripture is <clears throat> Acts chapter 3, the apostles early preaching. They say this, repent, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of re- refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, again, not for the first time, but for his return, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. See, so repent, get right with God, and then realize that we are waiting for the day, for the time to come when God will restore everything as Jesus returns. We look forward to that day. And we don't know when that'll happen. We don't set dates about when that's going to happen. Jesus says, you're not going to know. All you need to worry about is being ready. Be about the king's business so that whenever he does come, you'll be ready. And so the Bible, again, is not just a book that points us back to history. It points us forward to where we're headed. We see the last couple chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 20 to give us a picture of what's to come. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. He will rule on his throne. And like Simba in The Lion King, if you've seen the movie, there's darkness and desolation in the land until what? Until Simba returns and defeats Scar and takes back his throne. And then life and peace and flourishing is restored to the world. And so we look forward to that day where God will once for all put an end to evil. And all those who trust in him, all those who have believed 
and follow their Savior, will be ushered into his kingdom where there will be no death, no crying, no pain, but nothing but, but life and joy with God and his people in his restored world forever. And so, friends, those are the basics of the story. This good deposit, I believe Paul was referencing when he was talking to Timothy. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Big answers to the questions, where do we come from? What went wrong? How can it be fixed? And where are we going? I want to invite you to take a simple next step. If you're here and you're saying, okay, I, I, I want to keep learning. I need to keep remembering this story. Again, there are, a few, there are reasons we come together every week as a church, and we have small groups as a church, because we, we forget some of these truths. or We forget how they apply to our lives, and we forget to live in light of them. So we need, we need church. We need one another. We need small groups. We need community to help us continue to live in light of these realities. But I want to invite you, if you're saying, you know, I would love to keep reading and exploring this. We have prepared a resource that's simply just called a a gospel intro. It's a a 30-day personalized journey. So it's just something that you do on your own. Uh, There's a document we give you. There's a a book and some journaling that we want you to do. Just say, hey, if you're like, I I want to take a next step. I don't know exactly what all this means for my life, but I want to know more about what Jesus is up to and what that means for me and what that means for the world. Uh, If that's you, I would love to invite you uh, to take that step to get a gospel intro packet from us and in the course of about 30 days, work through that uh, during your own time. Uh, And so a way to get your hands on that, uh, if you fill out our connection card up in the top right, uh, the screen, and just let us know. Gospel intro. I'd love to have an opportunity. Uh, just you know, fill out your name, email, and then gospel intro. We will get that in your hands so that you can take that next step and just take 30 days uh, to journey and understand more. Who is this Jesus and what does it mean for me? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love you and we thank you for this incredible story, this incredible true story about who you are and what you've done, and what you are doing in our world. We thank you, Jesus, for the gift of redemption that you have saved us, all by your grace, all because of what you have done. Thank you. And we look forward to the day when you will return and set all things right. And We pray that you'd help us join you in your work of restoration in the world, that you'd be glorified, and that your world would be restored. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.